Thank you, Kevin, for leading us in worship this morning, and how wonderful to remember and to know that Jesus is a friend of sinners. So if you are a sinner, welcome this morning. You are in good company. Let's read in Proverbs chapter 1. This is page 527 in the Blue Bibles, if that is what you're using. The battle for wisdom. The battle for wisdom. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19. Please listen to the reading of God's word. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their path. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I've been reading a book that has been quite enlightening to me, and uh, I wanted to share some of the insights from this book with you this morning. And I hope you will see the immediate relevancy of the passage we read. Some of you may have heard of the name John Dewey. How many of you have heard that name before? Many of you. Wonderful. Well, actually not that wonderful, but John Dewey. He is considered to be the father uh, or main architect of what is known as progressive education which is the name given to a view of education designed to challenge and eventually eradicate the Judeo-Christian foundations of education in America. In this effort to slowly but surely remove any and all Christian influences from the educational system and promote as far as they could their anti-Christian ideas, the progressives developed a magazine called The New Republic, in which John Dewey wrote many articles calling for a more humanistic or man-centered understanding of education, effectively removing God from the picture. This was a slow but a very intentional process. So immersed was John Dewey in this humanistic project that in 1929, he helped established the first humanist society of New York. And a man by the name of Charles Potter became its first president. In 1930, Potter wrote a book titled Humanism, the New Religion. Humanism, the New Religion. What a hint that is, by the way, as to the true agenda uh, behind political progressivism. It's very important to know that. But please listen to what Potter said in his book. 
This one statement is quite possibly the most revealing in Potter's and Dewey's understanding of the power of education, the power of education in the life of children and eventually in the life of society as a whole. Speaking of this new humanistic education as seen in contrast with the Christian view of education, Potter said in his book, in a very challenging tone, quote, what can theistic Sunday school, meeting for once a week for one hour, do to stem the tie of a five-day program of humanistic teaching, end quote. To paraphrase what he said, a one-hour-long Christian Sunday school won't be able to withstand, to arrest, or limit the flood of humanistic and atheistic ideas we will infuse their minds with. If you notice, they were not even trying to hide the fact that this was a battle for the minds. Moreover, John Dewey and Charles Potter knew something quite quite central. The key, in fact, to change an entire society along with its culture. What is it that they knew? They knew the secret. They knew the secret. As the late singer and public theologian Whitney Houston said in the song, The Greatest Love of All, Dewey and Potter also believed that, quote, the children are our future, teach them well, and let them lead the way. Let them lead the way. Progressives knew and still know the force of that statement. But they added a very sinister twist. And this is a good platform from which we can launch into our study of Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19, for it sets the stage quite well for our considerations as we think together about the battle for wisdom. Hopefully the language of battle will be vindicated as we move through our passage. So where do we start? Where do we start? We must start with our central presupposition regarding wisdom, which is our first point in the sermon notes, if you're following along. The battle for wisdom presupposes a foundational principle. The battle for wisdom presupposes a foundational principle. What is that principle? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. Proverbs 1, 7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. My intention is not to develop this idea much further this morning other than to say this. I believe Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, just like chapter 9, verse 10, both are foundational verses in that they establish the ground upon which all the other Proverbs are built. Thus, before you even get to the specifics of wisdom, the foundational principle must be established. Whatever else comes after chapter 1, verse 7, must stand underneath this fear of the Lord. So the context of chapter, eight, chapter 1, verse 8, and of the entire book of Proverbs, then, is the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord leads the way for everything else in the book. The fear of the Lord is the foundational principle. So understanding or seeing our lives as creatures relative to the Creator 
is the central presupposition without which there can't be any wisdom. But this is what I really want to highlight. In my study, I was reminded of something that I said while preaching through the Ten Commandments. You might remember that the Ten Commandments are essentially a more detailed exposition of what? The two greatest commandments. The first greatest commandment is what? You shall love the Lord your God, which is further explained in commandments one through four of the Ten Commandments. And the second greatest commandment is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is further explained in commandments five through ten of the Ten Commandments. So the first four commandments have to do with our relationship with God, and the other six commandments have to do primarily with our relationship with our fellow man. But when I studied the fifth commandment, commandment number five, honor your father and mother, I realized that the placement of that commandment was quite important as well. Commandment five is the bridge that joins the love of God and the love of neighbor. Immediately after God tells us how to love him in commandments one through four, he brings everything into the home. Everything into the home, which further means that love for our human fellow humans begins within the context of what? The family. The family. You can't say that you love your neighbor if you fail to honor who? Your parents. Your parents, loving neighbor begins in the home as the practical outworking of loving God. It all begins within the home. The home is where the love of God is cultivated so that we may love our neighbor. Brothers and sisters, the same is true in the battle for wisdom. The same is true in the battle for wisdom. As soon as Solomon tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or of wisdom in verse 7, he brings us into the home in verse 8. Right into the home in verse 8. And this already serves to vindicate my language of battle. Battle. Since the family is so important both for love and wisdom, what do you think Satan is going to try to do with the family. Destroy it. Destroy it. Because the family is where all everything starts. This thought will be intertwined with almost everything I say again this morning. Therefore, the battle for wisdom begins in a context, which is our next point. The battle for wisdom, it begins in a context. The home. The home. Fathers. Mothers. Sons. These are the addressees of the passage. It goes right into the home. What an interesting insight we can glean from this almost immediately. Wisdom, brothers and sisters, is highly relational, for it must be transferred and received. That's the first insight. Wisdom is highly relational, for it must be transferred and received. Wisdom is the product of orderly relationships. Wisdom is the product of orderly relationships. In particular, wisdom flows out of the proper relationship between parents and children. What a concept that is. It should not surprise us that so much of the New Testament addresses the family relationships. Practically speaking, 
It should not surprise us that Pastor Brian puts so much effort, time, and energy into our family ministries. It should not surprise us that families stand at the very center of a well-ordered society. But neither should it surprise us that the family has been targeted so fiercely since the beginning of the world. The first attack from Satan against human beings came as he deceitfully found Eve alone, away from her husband. And the first murder recorder, recorded in the Bible is that of a man killing his own brother. Apparently, Satan also knows something about the family. He knows the primacy of the family for life in this world. And he knows that the home, the family, is the womb in which the gestation for wisdom takes place. Now, but Proverbs 1, chapter, verse 8, not only gives us the context in which the battle for wisdom begins, but it also presents to us the weapon with which the battle is fought. And here's our next point. In this battle, it wields a weapon. And what is that weapon? Discipline. Discipline. Instruction. Teaching. In thinking about the idea of behind the words instruction and teaching, I chose the word discipline to capture the essence of both. Discipline, as you know, is the word that the Apostle Paul used in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, to convey the same idea being expressed in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 8. The original word in the Greek, which Paul used when he told fathers to bring up their children in the what? The discipline of the Lord is the word paideia. The word paideia. Interestingly, as I was writing this, I anticipated that my iPad would highlight the word in red because I didn't think it would recognize it. It comes from the Greek, but it didn't. It recognized the word. So I clicked on the word and I asked my iPad to define the word for me. Interesting. And it said this, paideia, it defined it as in ancient Greece meant education and upbringing. That's the word paideia. But then it gave me a formal definition, my iPad, of all things. Yeah, I was going to make a comment, but I'm not going to make it. Here's the formal definition that my iPad gave me, paideia, paideia, the culture of a society. Interesting. The culture of a society. That's paideia. That's discipline. It involves instruction and teaching. It doesn't get any more comprehensive than that, brothers and sisters. Without a doubt, instruction and teaching were at the heart of the life of God's Old Testament people. But what did it look like? In one of the central passages of the Hebrew scriptures, the Shema, where where is that found? Deuteronomy chapter 6. We read the following words. This is one of the central passages. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And then it says this, you shall teach them diligently. To whom? To your children. And you shall talk of them 
when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, when your son asks you in time to come, you shall say to your son, you shall speak to your son, you shall teach him diligently. Did you notice the organic nature of this? They were to do life while holding on to revealed truth, instruction, teaching, and discipline in particular. All those terms convey an all-encompassing idea. To instruct or to discipline is not just about the imparting facts to be memorized, although those are certainly not excluded. Rather, instruction or discipline refers to the inculcation of an entire view or way of life. Discipline, in short, which involves instruction and teaching, will determine who children become as adults. Is the entire way of life. This being the case, discipline, this transferring of a way of life to the next generation is quite possibly the most coveted weapon for anyone, think about this, for anyone who would like to change the course of any culture. How do you do it? Through the paideia, through discipline, through instruction, through teaching. It is very, very powerful. In fact, I would argue this, those words in verse 8, hear my son, your father's instructions, are some of the most powerful words to change an entire society. This is a powerful weapon to change the, an entire generation, an entire culture, and it is very much coveted. As one author said in reference to Star Wars, the movie, and the main theme of the movie, he said, and I quote, paideia, or discipline, is the closest thing to a real-world cultural force. The force be with you, right? It is the closest thing to a real-world force that envelopes an entire civilization. Is that one word? The transfer of instruction and discipline from one generation to the next. But as we look at our passage in Proverbs 1, let me ask you this. What is the content of that instruction that the father gives the son? Believe it or not, is the fear of the Lord. That is what he's teaching him. The fear of the Lord. Where, where do I get that from? Well, consider verses 10 through 16 again. If sinners entice you, if they invite you to what? To participate in evil, such as the shedding of innocent blood, plundering, etc. These things represent evildoers, especially those who seek to do harm for no reason. So what's the instruction given by the father to the son? In summary form, stay away from them. Stay away from those who incite. Say no. Flee their presence. Resist temptation. Walk away. How is this teaching the fear of the Lord? Well, because the fear of the Lord, the Lord is to turn away from evil. This is where wisdom begins. Consider Psalm 34 verses 11 through 14. Psalm 34 verses 11 through 14. Listen to what David said after he was delivered from the hand of Abimelech. This is what he said. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. 
I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he said this, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's the fear of the Lord. It is to turn away from evil. As you can see, the instruction of the father to the son is highly practical, not just theoretical. All of this brings us almost by force to the question regarding the current state of affairs in our society. How in the world did we get to a point in our society in which it seems as though more and more people are accepting evil rather than than turning away from it? What is the force behind the promotion, for example, of transgenderism? How have we come to this point Uh, in which transgenderism is promoted as something we should not only endorse, but even encourage and even protect. How do we get to this point? We know what needed to happen, right? If you want the exaltation of evil and sin, you have to remove what? The fear of the Lord. This is what Paul explains in Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 3 and 2. That much we know. But the follow-up question is this, how do you do it? How do you remove the fear of the Lord from people, from society, from a culture? I believe Proverbs 1.8 gives us the answer. And here it is, the battle for wisdom. Next point. It targets a particular object. It targets a particular object. What is that object? The heart of the young. The heart of the young. Here my son. Hear what I'm going to tell you, my son. Whitney Houston was right after all. The children are our future. Teach them well. And here's where I disagree. Right? She said, let them lead the way. I would say, teach them well, and they will lead the way. No generation can separate itself from the previous one. Pretty obvious points, but what an important one. Therefore, the battle for wisdom, brothers and sisters, specifically targets the heart of the young. But I would like to open the veil, as it were, and show you the satanic strategy to accomplish this, to which I have already hinted in my introduction. Since discipline and instruction are about transferring a way of life to the next generation. And since this is the most powerful weapon, then Satan's affront against God will include an attack at this particular juncture. And the specific object of this attack will be the young. The young. Going back to the old magazine that I already mentioned, The New Republic, Carefully consider with me the words they published. And remember, this was a progressive magazine that uh, they published. Carefully consider the words they published back in July 29th, 1916. How far ago is that? That's pretty far away back. This is the language they were already using over a hundred years ago here in the United States. And this explains a very sinister agenda. They said this, quote, pay attention to this, quote, 20th century democracy believes that the community has certain positive ends to achieve. 
And if they are to be achieved, the community must control the education of the young. Must control the education of the young. Democracy believes that freedom and tolerance mean the development of independent powers of judgment in the young, not the freedom of older people to impose their dogmas on the young. Democracy claims no right to interfere with worship or opinion, but it does claim the right to develop in every child the capacity for testing its own convictions. It insists that the plasticity, plasticity of the child shall not be artificially and permanently hardened into a philosophy of life, but that experimental naturalistic aptitudes shall constitute the true education, end quote. Notice that very interesting word, plasticity. What comes to mind when you think of the word plasticity? Well, is the, the idea of moldability. But pay attention to what they say, to what they said. Over a hundred years ago, that plasticity of the child shall not be artificially or permanently hardened into a philosophy of what? Life. First of all, let me, let me confront this a little bit. That's a lie. That's a lie. Let me say why. Education or instruction always has the same purpose. The transferring of a philosophy of life. It doesn't matter where it, come from, where it comes from. Always, it is always transferring a philosophy of life. Education is never neutral. It never is neutral. Second of all, what are the parents of Proverbs chapter 1 seeking to give to their son? An entire worldview. A paideia, discipline and instruction. A comprehensive view of life rooted in the fear of the Lord. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, what John Dewey and Charles Potter were seeking to achieve over a hundred years ago through education could only be accomplished not by removing the transferring of a philosophy of life, but by offering a competing one, a competing one, a paideia, an instruction not rooted in the fear of the Lord, but in humanism, in humanism. The only way to convince an entire generation of people, brothers and sisters, that it is okay for a man to marry another man or for a woman to think that she is a man trapped in a woman's body is by removing the fear of the Lord as the central principle of life and replace it with another principle, one where the center is human, not divine. And this is what's happening. This is what we're living today. It has been in the making for many, many, many years. This is the reason why these humanistic thinkers targeted the young and wanted to control the education of the young because the battle for wisdom begins with the young, with the heart of the young. If you were to go to our website, our, our church's website, and went to our preschool section, you would read this. This is what we have written in our preschool section. Grace Preschool exists to equip the next generation to delight in God's glory. 
We're not hiding anything here. What do we want for the next generation? What do we want for our children, for the young minds? What do we want? We want them to know and love God. Brothers and sisters, we have an agenda. And we're open about our agenda. We want the next generation to delight in God's glory. Brothers and sisters, education, instruction, discipline, paideia always has a purpose. It never is neutral. There is always a worldview being transferred that will eventually work itself out in society. The real question is, what type of worldview are we transferring? As Christians, as the people of God, what do we want to transfer to the next generation? What worldview are we giving to them? Listen to Asaph in Psalm 78. Listen to what he said. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done so that they should set their hope in God. Isn't that what we want? Isn't that what we want more and more of the coming generation setting their hope in God so we don't, we don't hide the fact that we want the next generation to know and delight themselves in the Lord? But this, this doesn't happen when our instruction and our discipline is confined to one or two hours on a Sunday morning. It doesn't. This, my friends, is a way of life. What we want to transfer to the next generation is a way of life. My dear brothers and sisters, Everything I say is, is out of love, but if this is not the way of life you want to transfer to the next generation through instruction and discipline that they may love God, then what way of life do we want to transfer to the next generation? What philosophy of life are you depositing in their hearts? I can tell you this much. I can tell you this much. Don't miss this point. A philosophy of life, a way of life, is being transferred into the hearts and minds of the next generation. Which brings us to our next aspect of this battle for wisdom. It considers an ever-present danger. An ever-present danger. What is that danger? The course of this world. The course of this world. If sinners entice you and say, come with us, come with us. In the battle for wisdom, brothers and sisters, as we seek to transfer a biblical view of life to the next generation, and as even our youth thinks of this critical battle for themselves, we must keep in mind that the world is not standing still, but that it is moving ahead, presenting and proudly displaying its own view of wisdom, as I will discuss in a bit more detail in just a few moments. The world is always extending its own invitation to come and join in in its ways. What's the proof? Well, the present world in which we live, the present condition of our society is the, is the result of more and more people buying into the wisdom of the world, which is diametrically opposed to God's wisdom. Now, I will, I will seek to draw some application in just a few moments. So let us consider the last aspect of this battle in this battle, it reflects upon the future of the wicked. And what is the future of the wicked? Self-destruction. Self-destruction. 
In our battle for wisdom, brothers and sisters, we must not only remember the foundational principle, which is the fear of the Lord. Not only do we need to know the context where the battle begins, namely the home. Not only are we to be able, able wielders of the weapon, which is discipline and instruction, and not only must we be aware of the main target of this battle, which is the heart of the young, but in this battle for wisdom, we must also take time to meditate upon the severe consequences of walking in foolish rebellion. In verse 18, Solomon offers his sobering conclusion regarding the future of those who are bent on evil. He says, these men lie in wait for whose blood? Their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Those who are bent on living without acknowledging God are bringing disaster upon themselves. This is truly a sad day in our society. Consider, for example, the one sin that is being exalted above all others in our society. Sexual immorality of all kinds. What did Paul say about sexual immorality? In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul said that the sexually immoral person sins against whose body? His own body. And in Romans chapter 1, verse 27, Paul speaks of homosexuals as receiving in themselves, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Brothers and sisters, this is a sad day for this society because our current society is digging its own grave. And someone has to say it. And it's taking the young with it. There are so many examples I could mention, but I don't, I don't want to get into that, of the evil that is taking place in our society. We need to consider the fate of the wicked and let it drive us to our knees and to the cross. So let me give you some practical takeaways from this. In the battle for wisdom, in the battle for wisdom, think in terms of warfare. Think in terms of warfare. And the word there is enticement. Enticement. The world is always inviting us to think like, like them. Remember the words of Paul in Romans 12, do not be what? Conformed to this world. Why? Because the world is looking to conform you, which reminded me of the words I quoted from the New Republic magazine and the idea of plasticity. We are all conformable people, moldable, in particular the younger people. And this is where the battle for wisdom takes place, first and foremost. Now consider the next takeaway. Remember the importance of intentionality. Remember the importance of intentionality as we fight this battle for wisdom. And the word there is, hear, hear, my son, hear. This only serves to reinforce with absolute certainty the critical need of the time that we spend times as families speaking about the things of God, 
passing on the legacy of faith to the next generation. Notice that the two parties that are involved in this intentionality, first the parents who say, here, my son, there is intentionality on the part of the parents, and second, the son or the daughter that lends an attentive ear. So what is our duty in this matter of the battle for wisdom? To those who are in a position to influence the next generation, whether that is parents, grandparents, foster parents, aunts and uncles, is to promote the fear of God, both with our lips and through our lives. In the home, this will look like family worship. It will look like God-centered conversations, reading books together, praying together, singing together, memorizing God's Word together, and helping our children understand that all of life, no exceptions, is lived to the glory of God. But the key word is intentionality, intentionality. Hear, my son, come, listen to me. Why must we do this? Here's the next takeaway for us. Here's something you cannot forget. Don't forget the myth of Does anybody know? My wife knows. She has heard me talk about this many times. The myth of neutrality. The myth of neutrality. And it reminded me of the words of Joshua, which you can can include in there. Choose whom you will serve. Choose whom you will serve. These were the words of Joshua to the people of Israel. Critical words that still carry tremendous weight for us. The point was that they could either serve God or other gods, but what they could not do was to remain neutral. Brothers and sisters, whether you think as an individual or as a family, we're always serving a God. Remember, the world has a course, the course of this world. It never stands still. It is like the current in a river. As you probably know, the key to crossing a river successfully is by being aware of the currents underneath because that awareness yields the needed effect. We pay attention to where we place our footing. Knowing that the world has a current should lead us to pay very close attention to how we use our time and our days. Education is a current. There is no such thing as neutral education. Social media is a current. Friends are a current. Movies are a current. Books are a current. The question is, where are those current currents leading our children in the next generation? The next takeaway is this. Be mindful of the deceitfulness of your heart. Be mindful of the deceitfulness of your heart. There is a reason why the father says to the son, do not forsake. Why do you think he says that? In the battle for wisdom, we need to have a proper anthropology or a proper view of man. And a proper anthropology says that we are prone to what? Foolishness. We are prone to foolishness, especially our young ones. No offense especially our young ones. Proverbs 22, verse 15, folly is bound up, where? In the heart of a child. What is bound up in the heart of a child? Folly. There's a reason why we are told, do not forsake. 
The battle for wisdom requires, demands, in fact, that we remember that our heart is something to be guarded and kept with all vigilance. Proverbs 4.23. We must cultivate humility by acknowledging that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And we do this by remind, remaining in the word prayer and meeting with the saints as we are this morning. As long as we live in this fallen world and with this flesh, there will be an inclination to foolishness. Be mindful of this. And then the final takeaway, of course, we cannot talk about wisdom without talking about the Lord Jesus. Put on Christ, which means walk by faith. Walk by faith. If I could offer you a summary statement of Proverbs chapter 1, verses 8 through 19, it would be Romans 13, 14. Here's the essence of everything that Solomon told his son. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. That's it. That is a summary statement of what we heard in Proverbs. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh. If you will be wise, you must consider the Lord Jesus, for he is the wisdom of God. The Lord Jesus is Psalm 1 and Proverbs incarnate. He always listened to his Father's instruction. So when Jesus hangs on that cross, it is as though God was putting his own wisdom on display upon the cross. And because of grace and through faith, Christ also became our wisdom, which brings me back to the idea of the battle. Why is the search for wisdom a battle? Let us turn and finish our time. Let us turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to show you why this ultimately is a battle for wisdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and I want us to read beginning in verse 20 through 24. If you're using the Blue Bibles, this is in page 952. Consider with me the implications of what Paul says here. And we're talking about wisdom, wisdom, and why this is a battle. It says, Paul, in verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the what? The wisdom of what? The world. The wisdom of the world. Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom or through its own wisdom, worldly wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22. For the Jews demand signs. Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Hear this, GCC. The world has its own idea of wisdom, and it is antithetical to God's. In other words, they are mutually exclusive. As one writer pointed out, 
This antithesis between worldly wisdom and biblical wisdom is summed up very well in two statements that I need you to think about. One coming from Charles Potter, which I already mentioned, and the other one is coming from the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And it has to do with the greatest question of all. What is the greatest question of all for us to consider? What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of man? Charles Potter said this, quote, The chief end of man is to improve himself both as an individual and as a race. End quote. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, quote, The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Brothers and sisters, these two visions of wisdom and of man's chief end cannot coexist, at least not for very long. The best way to prove this is by simply remembering the words of our Lord Jesus who said, you cannot serve two masters. The nature of the battle for wisdom is this, We are always being faced with a question, either God's wisdom or the world's. And the only way to understand God's wisdom and apply it to our lives is by faith in the Son of God, wisdom incarnate, dying on a cross for our sins. So the call of wisdom is this, consider the Lord Jesus. Put on the Lord Jesus Have faith in the Lord Jesus. He will be a graceful garland on your head. And he will be pendants for your neck. Let us pray together. Father, we praise you and thank you for the wisdom that you have displayed in the person and work of Christ Jesus. And we are here this morning, not only to consider these things, but to acknowledge before you that apart from Christ, we have no wisdom. And so we thank you for displaying your wisdom as the Lord Jesus hang on that cross, dying for our sins. And thank you for reminding us this morning that we are saved by believing in what he did, what the Lord Jesus did on that cross, shedding his blood for us upon the tree. Help us, Lord, to find our wisdom our contentment, our joy, and our hope in knowing that you are for us in Christ. And help us to desire to grow in the wisdom that you have revealed through your word. And all these things we do by faith in him and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, to stand firm upon this wisdom and not to follow the wisdom of the world. And so, Father, now we ask that by your Spirit you will do what only you can do, and that is to apply the truths that we have heard this morning and help us to live by them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.